0: so start looking in the right place with LinkedIn you can hire professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today the slaughter podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing if you're still listening you should be ashamed of yourself <laughs>
1: Hi guys, welcome to episode 32 of Slaughter. Pick numbers. I'm Lucy. <laughs> I'm Emma. I'm not talking loud enough. <clears throat> or too loud. That really annoys my dad. He always says, that, you and your mother, you talk so quietly. I'm like, have you met me and my mother? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you and your mother don't. My mum always moans about me mumbling. I think, it, yeah. You're muttering. I don't know if it's just an old person thing. No, you're just going deaf. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs>
2: Or I don't want you to hear what I'm saying. That's that's why I'm talking quietly because me and my mum are having private conversations and we're just like, not you, dad. (laughs) So we're at my house today. Emma's come round. I think I'm going to have to accept that Luke and I are one of those couples that if you pop round, the house isn't going to be tidy and that's just going to be the way it's going to be. I I thought when I got to the age of 30, I would just have a tidy house all the time.
1: Magically appear. Yeah, I'd just become a tidy person. It doesn't work like that. You need the threat of someone coming over to keep it tidy. That's the only only reason I keep it tidy because I know my mum and dad have got a key. They will pop in at any time. They've been around three times this week. I just come home and I'm having to look for clues. Oh, the washing up's been done. They were here. These plants are looking healthier.
2: They were here. See, the sphere of people that I don't see as a threat to having to tidy is getting larger. There's you... My mum. You're too comfortable with all of us. The dog walker. It's just, they've seen it now. It's like, my face is bare today. And I just think, Emma's seen my face enough times that she's just going to look at it and be like, yeah, that's Lucy's face. This is what she looks like. Yeah. Rather than, oh, she's not as pretty as I thought she was. I remember you. (laughs) She's looking rough.
1: (laughs) Right, so... I'm really excited to hear about your story because it's someone we've been talking about for a while. I think from when we started the podcast, we were like, eventually we're going to do this story. Yeah. Um, and now it's happening.
2: So today I'm going to tell you about Stephen Port, the grinder killer. Although that is false advertising because... It sounds
1: like he grinds them up, grinds the bones to make his bread. And also
2: he only used grinder for one of them.
1: Oh. So... What did he use then? Mm, plenty of right, fish yeah. plenty of fish okay cupid good one yeah <laughs> harmony I wouldn't say plenty of fish was the good one anything that's free is the bad one that's how I met Luke we're the success story
2: you're the <laughs> we one. were the only good ones <laughs> and you found, each, found other. each other we God, got so Stephen Port was born in 1975 in South End on Sea and he lived there till he was one and then his family moved to Dagenham, which is London. Essex? Yeah. Um, and his parents still live in Dagenham. At school, he was described as a loner. So one of those kids.
1: Everyone's described as a loner at school. If you pop round these schools, it's just a lot of children spinning in circles on their own. They're not as alone as they used to be, because now they're allowed
2: phones at break. Oh, your kids are, are they? Yeah. So you're never alone with a phone. That's true. Even if you're standing on your own, you look like you're doing something.
1: Yeah, everyone assumes that you're really popular and you've got loads of friends. What they don't know is that you're just really sick at (laughs) mahjong.
2: Although what I hate is when kids, I'm like, put your phone away. No, it's important. No, unless you're a businessman contacting Japan right now for an important conference call, it's not important.
1: Yeah, what have you got to do at half ten in the morning that's urgent business? Yeah, sorry, it's important. What, your Snapchat?
2: No, it's not. So he came out around the age of 30 as gay, which is quite late in life, really. There's not a lot of information on um, the middle years, but he became quite a regular on gay dating and escort sites, and he used a lot of fake names, and he had a type very much. So he wasn't looking for love then. Mm.
1: He used a fake name. He did have
2: boyfriends, but he also had regular hookups. So he liked young... Slim gay men around the age of 17. Don't we all? (laughs) So what he'd be described as a twink. I know that there's different terms that he used. So twink is... The little hairless cute boys. Yeah. Um, Port's neighbour spoke a lot about Port. And he said that he was very childlike despite being in his late 30s. And he also... In what
1: respect do you think?
2: Well, he talked about a time when he... Literally being childlike, he got a toy truck out and started rolling it around the car. Oh, like.
1: shit. Not just, oh, he has a sense of adventure, <laughs> but as Thomas the Tank Engine's his favourite TV show. <laughs> a little bit. He does a Thomas the Tank Engine episode review podcast.
2: <laughs> it's I'm called
1: Thanks for the Tanks. <laughs> uh,
2: he also reported seeing a lot of powder and liquid drugs in his flat. So he obviously knew a lot about drugs, used drugs. And he said that Port's boyfriend would tell him about his violence towards them. So he did have relationships. I mean, this neighbour was heavily involved
1: in his his life. He was the nosy bastard. Yeah. He's probably his drug dealer, but didn't want to say... (laughs) Maybe, but he seemed pretty nice. Chatting to all his partners as well. Yeah, they just open up to him. That happens though. You know what it is? It's people that smoke outside their house. Like, Mm. I was dating someone and his next door neighbour would always be stood outside his front door having a cigarette. So every time I went in, he was talking to me. Every time I came out, he was talking to me. And you do end up sharing a lot of your life with outdoor smokers. I bet that's
2: it. So he lived in London in a flat in Barking and he lived alone, which... Ooh, must have had some money. Yeah, unusual for London, <laughs> right. isn't it? Right, even in your late thirties. But he worked as a chef at a stagecoach depot in West Ham, which oh. is possibly the most depressing life <laughs> that I can think of. We I mean, we've been to those coach stations, and yeah. there's not a lot going on. Had a, a lot of sandwich. sad people
1: who couldn't afford the train.
2: But what's a chef doing there?
1: Heating up panines. slapping ham in a sandwich. Not a lot. That's all he wanted to do. Maybe that's it. He's like, what skill sets do I have? 19th June,
2: 2014. This is incredibly recent, this story.
1: Well, um, Uh, yeah, because anything after 2000, I'm like, kids, this was only written in 2001. It's so modern. They're like, "Mm, I was born in 2010. I was like, show your face.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I hate that. Even the ones I teach, like, I was born in 2001. We should all be dead. We should have a cull. I was a proper person then. Everyone after 2000, you're gone. (laughs) You're done. So, 19th June 2014, age 39, Stephen Port called the emergency services, claiming he'd found a man collapsed in Cook Street, East London, right outside of his flat. Okay. Um, You can listen to the call online. Uh, It's not very nice. I mean, it's just a guy saying, I've found this guy, I think he's um, passed out. Uh, The emergency services arrived and they found the body of Anthony Walgate aged twenty three, sitting outside Port's door. Port was questioned, and he said that he'd found the body after he'd returned from a night shift. Oh, so he shift. found
1: a Body. So was it dead?
2: Anthony was dead.
1: Ah.
2: So he phoned and said, "There's a dead guy outside my
1: flat." It's leaf. when you go, "Mom, somebody flooded the bathroom." You're my only child. <laughs> it was you. <laughs> um. So,
2: I mean, that that's trying to cover up. That's bad isn't it well, he's
1: not really trying to cover up is he so it sounds like what can often happen with the first kill in that it's sort of things escalate and then you panic you like you haven't got your stories you haven't got you know the procedures in place yet
2: possibly what do you
1: do ring the emergency services
2: but you'd think this is so close to, i mean he's the one phoning the emergency services so Anthony Walgate was an outgoing young fashion student who was studying at whole university and he also worked as an escort along with studying so port had contacted wargate via a website called sleepy boys which was a male escort service and offered- if i
1: wanted an escort that's the last adjective i'd want <laughs> that's, the, that's what i was thinking because <laughs> one i want to go out i either want to go out in the night or i want you to be in bed and awake yeah <laughs> I don't want you to be falling asleep at any point. Sleepy boys. Sounds like a dud night. It sounds crap. Like, what are they bringing to the table? I'll come round and
2: yawn in, you, in your <laughs> face. So he offered to pay him £800 to stay over at his flat. Tragically, Anthony's mum found out about the death while on holiday and she was away in Turkey. And they phoned her and said they found Anthony's body in the street. She flew home and headed straight. To to obviously find out more. Um, She's spoken out about the lack of investigative work about his uh, murder. Police refused to track his phone. Refused? Refused. They said it was too expensive. They didn't treat his death as suspicious. They said, oh, he's overdosed. Is that what they said the cause of death was? Yeah. They took all of his belongings and put them into storage for two years and then gave it back to her. So obviously... It couldn't be retested she, after that point. She could be retested, but also it's it was all mouldy, like they just shoved it in a storage room and that's all she had of her son because he'd moved out he'd taken his stuff with her. And she just wanted his things and for two years it was taken away and then it was just returned in bags. Like, his everything that belonged to his son. It just looked tragic. The, yeah, they basically said, he's taken a drug overdose, he's died, and off.
1: Just sort of Similar to the situation with the three girls thing, which I watched and loved. Um, it sounds like they had him pegged as, you know, a, a druggy gigolo. Yeah. Like, this sort of thing's happened, like, we don't care to investigate it because it's his lifestyle that's got him there. Well, this
2: is before they even knew that he was working as an escort. No, like, young young kid dies... From drug overdose.
1: Boring. It's his own fault. Yeah. interesting. interested.
2: So they didn't even know about him working as an escort until his friend went to the police and said, by the way, he's an escort. And then they looked into it and they realised that Stephen Port had hired him for that night. And you'd think, end of, come on, guy find dead. This guy's lying about it. It would not take long to look in his hat, his flat, do a bit of investigative work, look on his laptop and find that he's the main suspect. So Port was arrested, but for perverting the course of justice. So basically for lying about not knowing Anthony and he'd given accounts. So he did say, oh yes, I did hire him as an escort. He did come round, but he took the drugs himself and he had an overdose and then I didn't know what to do. So i
1: Dragged the body to the street
2: Yeah Um, No, no, he said Yeah, he said he'd gone to work And he'd come back eight hours later And he'd found him dead in his flat And then he'd just moved him outside Because he'd freaked out And then he phoned the police Um, He was released on bail For the preventing course of justice charge Police refused to look at Port's computer They took the computer Why
1: are they saying no to stuff? Yeah, they
2: took the computer But they said it's too expensive to analyse so if they had, it had the most disturbing things. This is in London out.
1: as well, and I'm not being funny, but they should, don't the London police get most of the budget for that sort of stuff. It was
2: ridiculous. Ridiculous. One mother there left with the knowledge, Oh, my child took a drug overdose. The shame they can't of that would have refused.
1: refused. I can't believe and, that.
2: Yeah. Well they just said it's too expensive. It's an open and shut case. What's the point? They're basically just taking it at face value then. Yeah. They're not suspicious. Yeah. not suspicious at all. Two months later, 22-year-old artist Gabriel Kovari went to stay at Ports Flat. So he was originally from Slovakia mm-hmm. and had moved to London and he was looking for a room to rent and he moved in with John Pape, who had a room to rent, and he lived there for six weeks. And then he told John he was moving out. Now, I really like... John Pape he is he's a bit like the neighbour like he wants to know what's going on so he said to John I'm going to move in with this guy Stephen Port who had offered him a room for free and he just he basically said I want to fill the flat come and stay at mine I want to fill the flat yeah so Port's neighbour the one that we talked about already met um, Gabriel and he texted him and said oh I've just met Gabriel Stephen wasn't around Um, he's really nice and then port texts back saying oh yeah i'm taking really good care of him bit creepy gabriel then
1: disappeared you're not taking very good care of him then no
2: port told his neighbor that he didn't know where gabriel was and then later on changed his story he texted the same neighbor saying gabriel had gone home and that he'd got an illness and unfortunately died what weird and then he said, Oh, can you, but can you say not say anything on Facebook because his family are really upset about it? He
1: went home and died.
2: Really weird. So Gabriel's
1: body was found just 500 metres from Port's flat. It was found by a dog. No wonder he's going to Sleepy Boy's escort agency. He's the laziest fucking murderer that we've had so he's far. Not even this trying. is how I dispose of evidence place it. Out of my reach. He's not even trying. No. He's not bothered about getting caught, really. And if... He's on bail, so he should be laying low. But he's literally going to place a body, which will be found, because it's just in the open, 500 metres from his house. And it's the same drug. The same (laughs) drug that they've overdosed on.
2: And it was found by a dog walker who... She did the same route every day. Mm. And she would just walk around, and she walked through a graveyard. And she walked through, and his... Gabriel's body was sitting against a wall and she thought it was someone who'd fallen asleep. So she went over, touched him to wake him up and then found the body to be cold. She thought it was very suspicious because he looked like he'd been placed there in terms of, she said, even his glasses. Should anybody try and put glasses on someone? You can't quite do it. It's a really fiddly thing to do. And they look yeah. like, they're kind of like, if you're trying to put them on the it face, and they're going skew it. His glasses were like that. Like someone They've had like shoved them his on face. his face. She phoned the police. The police's response was someone just had an overdose in a graveyard, big whoop. Um, they believed it to be a drugs overdose. They said it was not suspicious. They tracked his address previously. They had no idea that it was related to Stephen Paul, but they contacted John. John Pape. John Pape. The Papester. Yeah. And they said to him, it's not suspicious. We're just letting you know this guy's died. And didn't really ask him much more. He His response wasn't just, okay, then. He no. began to investigate things himself. Yeah,
1: he was like, he moved in with a strange man and then I didn't hear of him since.
2: Yeah. He tied the death to that of Anthony. Basically, Google search. Another guy in the same area found in the street <gasps> with drugs overdose. He's Capes the best. Yeah. So he's saying, well, these, it looks like these must be linked. He immediately suspected a serial killer. Police totally discounted that. They didn't release any warnings, they didn't they didn't make the press, they didn't put it out in the area that young gay men are being, you know, are dying. There was nothing leaked out, so no one could come forward with anything. If they had, then Port's neighbour would probably yeah. have gone with the text messages. So there was nothing. It was it's not suspicious. Yeah, because he would the neighbour could have said, Oh, Port's told me he went home and died. Yeah. Yeah. There was nothing hadn't. out there, nothing in the papers, nothing
1: what it did Pape
2: do next? Ridiculous. So, well, he couldn't do... At this point, he couldn't
1: do anything. So, unfortunately... I'm already planning a TV series featuring Pape. Like, do we know what his actual day job was? Uh, we don't, but... I wanted to be like something like, oh, he's just a simple baker, but then he investigates crimes. Oh, shit, that's pie in the sky, isn't it? I mean, there's some more people who could join him later on in our story. Well, Pape and neighbour. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they just need to hook up and fight crime. There we
1: go. So 18th September...
2: The same year. A month later. Daniel Whitworth. He's still on bail, like just chilling. Still on bail. Daniel Whitworth, 21, is contacted by Port and they meet for dinner. Daniel Whitworth was also a chef and he was living in Kent with his partner. Um, and he met Port on a website called Lads, which is a bit more relevant. Yeah, it? that's at least a website you'd consider visiting. So Daniel's body was found. Now this is... The scary thing. In exactly the same position as Gabriel's. In exactly the same spot. No! By exactly the same dog walker. She must have been free. Oh
1: my god. She said she was
2: walking the route and she walked into she, the graveyard. you think saw, she'd have
1: PTSD by now.
2: She saw a young man in exactly the same spot, in exactly the same position. You wouldn't believe and it. And she said to herself, not again. Walked over. He's dead. She couldn't believe it. She said anybody would have found it suspicious. And basically the police were ridiculous and their response was ridiculous.
1: No. It's been placed in the same place. The same place. That doesn't happen. Lightning doesn't strike twice.
2: With the same drug.
1: No. Did they?
2: What? Yeah. So Port had obviously put the body there. And he'd also put with Daniel a fake suicide note. Which suggested that he had been in a relationship with Gabriel... And that they had been together when Gabriel had died from an overdose. And he felt guilty about it. So he'd killed himself.
1: So the cops. So basically Port was like, there's no way I'm dragging a body any further than 500 metres. I'm going to have to make up a plan so that when I put it in the same place, it looks like there's a reason. Because be fucked if I'm moving it anywhere else. Yeah.
2: But the cops took everything on face- on face values. But they just took it as... Didn't investigate if they did know each other. Because this guy had a boyfriend. You could have just asked him. Yeah. Did you ever see them together? Is there any evidence that he knew him?
1: Can I see his handwriting?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. Daniel's mum received, obviously, the visit. Two policemen show up at your door. You know, holy shit, who's died? I did, yeah. She was told her son had killed himself. um, And they told her about the note. Now, they sent her some of the note and said... Does it look like his handwriting? And she obviously, I mean, you don't write much down. She kind of... As an
1: adult, you don't really know what uh, it looks like, I suppose.
2: So she said she couldn't be sure. And that was the Mm -hmm. statement she gave. I can't be sure if it's his. The pathologist reported bruising on Daniel's body, which would indicate... A struggle. A struggle. The mother wasn't told any of that. She was told a handwriting expert's going to have a look at the note and some of his handwriting and compare, which you would expect.
1: That is one good thing about this podcast, is that there is tons of our handwriting examples. <laughs> no one's going to forge a suicide note for me. Thank no. you very much. It also said in the note,
2: oh, don't blame the guy I was with last night. Ha! You're kidding. Honestly. It's almost like a kid has said, oh, I broke the vase. I didn't mean to do it. And no, a raccoon do it. did it, but don't blame the raccoon. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. It was ridiculous. Literally, the quote: "Don't blame the guy I was with last night." It's none of his. It's not his fault. Um, When she asked who the guy was that he was with last night, the police response was, "We don't know," but not really much attempt to find out. Um, John is back. He heard about the death and he immediately suspected a murderer. And he called the detective, and said, "I'm really scared now. I'm a gay man in the area." There's three people dead now. I think really it's a serial short space killer. Of time. And he said, "Can you can you tell me this definitely isn't a murder?" And they said, yeah, no, definitely not a murderer." Open a shut case. We know exactly what happened.
1: Seems well, like the only way this is going to be concluded is if John Pape joins the police force and gets yeah. shit done himself. Yeah, um, take we, your exams now, John. He's it's the only way out.
2: Trying his best, bless him. So. Port, even more childish and teenage and weird, made a, a fake Facebook account for a guy called John Luck, who is an ex-porn star, apparently. I think he's on podcasts
1: we listen to.
2: <laughs> um, And he started posting under this fake account of this fake porn star um, from the States and wrote posts about Gabriel and Daniel being together at parties and how they'd taken a lot of drugs. But he also wrote about old guys raping the young guys at these parties and said when they were passed out and said oh yeah it happens all the time I've seen it happen there's older guys they get the guy, the young guys high on drugs wait till they pass out and then they have sex with them and John read these on Facebook and he contacted the police again and said that there's evidence that these guys were together do you want to look into it and stuff's going on that's dodgy this all doesn't add up And they ignored it again. So he went to local gay news site, Pink News, and um, a a LGBT support site called The Gallup. They both contacted the police as well. And they were told, we don't want to speak to John. None of this is suspicious. You need to just leave it alone now. Three people dead. The Whitworths also started getting concerned. So Daniel Whitworth, third victim. They started getting concerned. Because they read a statement in a report that said that they had identified the handwriting as Daniel's. Which they never did. They never said, yeah. that's Daniel's handwriting. And they also found out that a handwriting expert had never analysed that note. It would just been taken on face value. There was also evidence, such as a bed sheet that was found with the body. There would have been DNA! That they hadn't tested for DNA. Because they said there was no need to, it's too expensive. Port's DNA could have been on there and Port's DNA was on fire. Basically, file. they're
1: saying everything is too expensive. One of these police officers is embezzling funds because there is definitely some money there for DNA testing. That's basic. We've got a dead body. Yeah. Test shit. Test something. Test one thing. Test one thing. If you're going to test one thing, test the fucking spunk-covered bedsheet that's next to him. <laughs> yeah. And Paul's
2: DNA was on file, so if, it, if the DNA was on that bedsheet, They didn't know. He, he's not trying. He's leaving so many ways to find out what's going on. Um, the family didn't know about the bruises. The family asked for an investigation to be reopened, and they were told no. Trick bench, No. So, March 2015... Finally, the court case for Port perverting the course of justice, he gets eight months in prison.
1: Right, so So at least
2: there's eight months where no one's going to die. Yeah. He comes back out the next year. Three months after he's out, 13th September 2015, Jack Taylor and Port speak on Grindr, which is gay Tinder, isn't it? Yeah. And Jack travels to Barking to meet Port. Jack was a young forklift uh, driver. He lived with his parents in Dagenham. He was funny, considerate, really close to his family. Another lovely young man. Jack's body was found the next day in the same graveyard with a syringe in his pocket and a needle mark on his arm. Not in exactly the same spot, but the same graveyard. It's close enough. It's ridiculous. Jack's family straight away said Jack doesn't take drugs anti-drugs there's absolutely no way he's there's a drug overdose here no investigation he lives
1: at home so they know as well it's not just oh my mom says i don't do drugs she would know
2: yeah no investigation was carried out jack's sisters donna and jen they just started their own investigation they stayed up till 5am every morning getting evidence looking at reports so they did a john they were they weren't having it they did loads of research they put the crimes together. Obviously, they looked on the internet, found out about the other three deaths. They suspected the serial killer. Same drug, all young, all gay.
1: In the same fucking graveyard! Yeah. Please told them there was no connection. Um Well, there is a connection. Location, cause of death, sexual orientation. Like, here are the connections we're giving you. It was so obvious. So
2: obvious. Due to their constant questions, eventually they checked CCTV footage, found footage of Port meeting Jack at the station, and the two walking together. And now he's the connection. Yeah. They did nothing to find out who Port was. They just... Oh, he met a man, and then they walked. And then they told the girls that they walked together for a while, and then the man left, and Jack
1: walked towards the graveyard. I can't... I mean... It's quite easy in a lot of these cases to blame the police for not spotting things because hindsight's twenty twenty. You can miss things. But it's really difficult, from what you're telling me, to see this as reasonable. Why would they be doing it unless there's some... Some homophobia must be affecting this. Someone's opinions of gay men has to be affecting this situation for them not to be investigated. To find a body, the third body, in the same place and not to open investigation on it.
2: Yeah, within a year. It's not even a long time. It's within the same year. So they told the girls, the two sisters, that the man had left Jack and Jack had gone his own to the graveyard. We don't know that. We're just going to guess things. The sisters convinced a sergeant to go and look again. And he agreed eventually. And he said that there was no footage of Jack alone, that he was always with the man in the final footage. The police told them, and they said, right, well, you need to release the footage of this man because we need to find out who he is. Because he was alone with my brother on... The final few hours of his life. I want to Meet know him. who this guy is.
1: Get him on crime watch.
2: They said no. They carried on fighting. Eventually, they released one bit of footage of Port at the station meeting Jack. Two days later, Port's arrested because there's so many people who know stuff. As soon as that's out there, yeah, people
1: involved. Neighbours involved.
2: So, having released the footage, I mean, meant people like John could come forward. He's got text messages. He could link. Port to all the different people he's seen them at the flat. They searched the computer. Eventually, searches on there that they had. They had this computer all along. Searches like drug rape, things about killing people. We like porn of photos of him having sex with unconscious men. Absolutely ridiculous that they'd
1: had from the first murder. Yeah,
2: Port's DNA was found on a hoodie worn by Daniel Whitworth. So once they're finally the plan preparing for court, they actually bother to do all this stuff, and realize drugs were in his flat. He used to, he would spike drinks or inject the the men to make them unconscious. And Port was jailed for life. He showed no emotion in court. The police have been accused of homophobia, not looking at things because it's gay men. And then they self-referred for an inquiry and. It, they've released statements now saying that they've had training and a checklist for this kind of crime so that they know what to look for next time. But,
1: I mean... Well, th- dead bodies usually mean...
2: Like- three of these kids could have survived if if the first crime had been treated as suspicious. There was no reason that they couldn't have caught him straight away. It's yeah. a really interesting case, but it's such a frustrating one.
1: It's not very funny. No sorry they rarely are to be fair are you sitting comfortably yes then i'll begin
0: hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot
1: uncomfortably close to you to try and get it we're uncomfortably close and one of my arms is now asleep after holding the microphone (laughs) at you for the last half an hour so who gives a fuck (laughs) (laughs) so the story that i'm going to bring you today most of the research comes from a book called blood in the glens by jean mclennan and she writes in a beautiful way, in that she'll slip in every now and again, she'll call people lass or lad, <laughs> just to add that authentic Highland feel oh, to it. <laughs> the main event in this story, I'm going to start with the murder. It took place on the 2nd of June, 1994, in Kirkwall of the Orkney Islands. A man wearing a balaclava walked into the Momutaz restaurant, holding a handgun He walked past the diners and up to the manager, Shamsuddin Mahmood, and he held the gun to Mahmood's face and shot him at close range before immediately fleeing the scene. So just walked in, calm as anything, shot him, done. That was it. No warning. Shamsuddin was of Bangladeshi descent, and he was a well-liked member of the community, and most people knew him as Shamol. Now, Orkney, where it took place, I don't know if you know it well, um, it's a group of islands and it's right off the very northern coast of Scotland. So there's John O'Groats at the very top of Scotland and then it's off that coast up there. And before this shooting, there hadn't been a murder in Orkney since 1969. Now the murder in that case was an 18-year-old Alexander Bruce and he was arrested straight away and but questioned without any legal representation or an appropriate adult. And at the time, the age of consent was 21. So because he was a minor and it hadn't happened that he was interviewed with anybody with or his parents or anything, that when the case went to trial in Aberdeen, the judge really slammed the Orkney police and the accused went free. So the last time they had a murder, the police kind of really fucked it up. So because of this when investigating the murder of Mr Mahmood they were really meticulous and cautious it's a shame it takes that though isn't it that oh we were shit
2: last time we'll have to do it really good this yeah because
1: it was really obvious that it was that person before but none of the interviews could be admitted as evidence because it hadn't been done properly <sighs> and in Scotland for a really really long time they had the thing where you could only be tried for a case once If you're acquitted of that trial, that's it. So you couldn't be tried twice. I was just going to say it changed in 2010, so that they still have that rule technically, um, but there's exceptions. So if new evidence is brought to light, then you can appeal to have them tried again, or if it's found that the original trial wasn't carried out properly, if there was something unfair that happened in the first trial you can do it again um, so that's that but yeah so i think the police were really trying to make sure that they they didn't bring anyone to trial until they had were absolutely cast iron short because this is, the last time they'd had it they'd gone free so there was no point rushing into anything and so um kirkwall where the shooting took place is on what's called mainland orkney so the biggest island in the middle and altogether the area's made up of actually 70 islands And at the time they had a police force of thirty six officers and they'd work in three shifts of twelve that rotated. So normally that was enough officers to cover the area because there wasn't really much going on. It's really peaceful. Yeah, I bet being a small town policeman is a DOS job most of the time. And you could get to quite all the islands through causeways, but there's not there's two main towns, Kirkwall and drumness i think it's called in fact there's two main towns and then the rest of it lies so there's not really much scope for yeah because don't policemen like do the rounds and they pop in the pub and then they go and have a chat with someone in a small area yeah i think they're more like local bobs. yeah well known to people definitely they were well yeah. known to people and it was a community thing so people definitely had believed that Anything like this that happened, this shooting, must be from someone who's not from round here because we're this nice little community mm. and it couldn't be someone from Orkney that just walked up and shot someone. That doesn't happen here. So Quiet. there was definitely this belief that it was an outsider that did it. Yeah. So because of this, it was fine normally, but now they've had this serious crime happen. They need a lot more manpower. So extra officers had to be shipped in from Inverness. But... As this was June, it's the high tourist season. So they were struggling for accommodation, basically. So they could only take 20 extra officers because that was the only the amount of space they had to put them up. Can't Everywhere was full.
2: People's spare
1: room. They're the suspects. So DS George Goff was in charge um, of the inquiry and he made sure that things happened quickly. So they sealed off the island's and everyone leaving for the next three days was subject to a stop, a search, and they were questioned about where they'd been for the past few days and like what they'd been doing on the island. No e-fit of the murderer was able to be made, um, the, obviously because he was wearing a balaclava when he came in and did it. And the witnesses at the scene, they were all contradicting each other so much that they couldn't even put together any kind of description of the build of this person. And partly because it was an unexpected attack so when he was walking in no one was really looking at him because you weren't what it wouldn't have seemed unusual and then because of the close range shooting people were hit with brain and oh blood God. so it was quite a ter- distressing traumatic experience people were in shock afterwards
2: yeah
1: so they weren't really again they weren't really able to give proper descriptions so the word was put out we're looking for a man between the ages of 16 and 60 and between the height of five six and six foot two.
2: Oh my god that's as
1: literally as narrow as they could make it from their descriptions they've done quite a lot of research into the effect of weapons
2: effect on eyewitness testimony and if there is a weapon it means that people are far less accurate in the statement that they give because you just focus on that
1: weapon and you, you, your attention is drawn there. No, that is interesting. In the book, they say that some psychologists had said that because of the type of crime it was, that people automatically want to have an idea of the type of person that does it. They were saying that because they couldn't see them, they, in their head, picture what a shooter would be like. So they yeah. people say, oh, it was this big man. Yeah even though it probably... It's a bit like you said, it's unre- they end up being unreliable witnesses, not out of choice, but just because mm. it's such a difficult situation. And in a small community, if they talk to each other, it's going
2: to totally change their story as well because they'll all just conform to what the others are saying and just get
1: one idea of what kind of person it was. Exactly. So the police began house-to-house inquiries and they went to local businesses and asked them to hand in their CCTV tapes. Everybody was involved in collecting the information they were trying to leave no stone unturned but finding the motive for this killing was obviously going to be really important because they couldn't figure out who the person was just from the description so they began to look into the background of mr mahmood at the time of his murder he was only 26 Aww. and he was described by the islanders as being likable and friendly. Um, He had a girlfriend in Bangladesh who was studying to be a doctor and his family said that the wedding was expected, it was going to be imminent. He'd worked in London and Southampton and he'd returned to Orkney to work as a manager of this restaurant only in April 1994, so he'd only been back for three months and police just couldn't find anyone that had any problems with him. he just Mm. had just a lovely guy. Everyone that knew him just agreed that he was just a lovely person. He'd never got into trouble or yeah load anyone money so they couldn't find it um so then there started to be rumors so like why would someone do this he must have had a skeleton in his closet there must have been something and all around the island people started saying so maybe he was involved in drugs or maybe he had debts with loan sharks there must be something about this man that we don't know Um, but nothing was coming out all of it's unfounded and basically they just decided that the only thing left is that this is a racial attack and that's the only thing that it couldn't have been personal to him it was purely racial.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess that would be
1: the assumption you'd make. So in 1994, the immigrant community in the islands was very small. So there weren't many people and he would have stood out. And the owner of the restaurant was so concerned for safety because he believed that it was purely racial attack that he moved his wife and children into temporary accommodation as a safe house. And he went to the children's school and said, can you keep my kids in at break and lunch times because I don't want people spotting them and making them a target. But the only hard evidence that they could actually find from the scene was a bullet and the casing for it. So the local firearms expert was Constable Eddie Ross. And he examined them and identified it as a 9mm bullet that had been manufactured in the Kirki Arsenal in India. So it was quite a specific bullet. So then... Ross then took all the legally registered firearms from the island and was test-firing them to see if that bullet would work in any of them. That's just, a fun job. Yeah, just shooting into just the sea. Shoot. So, as well as the other inquiries, the locals were asked to come forward with any information they got in case they missed anyone. And Lynn Railston, a girl, and her mum came forward to say that about three weeks before the shooting, on the 19th of May... They were looking at their house overlooks Patdale Woods and they saw a young man wearing a balaclava and very much like what was described for this killer. And they said he'd been there on his own for about an hour and he was sort of creeping about as if he was stalking prey. Like just skulking was the word used.
2: I mean, it would draw your attention if someone was going around in a balaclava because they are not a general fashion choice these days.
1: Especially not in May.
2: The only reason you're wearing a balaclava is because you're up to no good.
1: Or well, if you've got, 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 got really cool ordering. parents. I did I did have balaclavas as a child. Really? But not IRA balaclavas. Like ones where my whole your whole face yeah. is in the hole. Like little foreskin one. They've they've not made a comeback. But I don't think they ever will.
2: They're the only thing that's not made a comeback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fingers crossed
1: so he was just skulking around they were like this is weird what's he doing he's a practicing for something looking for something and it's the middle of may so he had this balaclava and a big dark coat they then said that he took off the balaclava and the dark jacket because he had brightly colored t-shirt on underneath put them in his rucksack and left and neither of them recognized him or knew who he was so the house to house inquiries in the kirk Hall lasted over a fortnight and every householder was interviewed And all the men between the ages of 16 and 50 had been questioned. What came forward was that there were sightings of a male who they thought matched the description of this killer, which could be anything, was sighted in a public toilet near the restaurant just before the shooting, as well as a balaclava in a bag had been found in the toilets of a pub not far from the restaurant as well. Surely that's got DNA in it. You would think so. As far as I'm aware, they either tested it and didn't know who it matched. Yeah. Or they didn't test it. There's no, It yeah. didn't bring any about anything that they could. problem with DNA is if unless you've got their DNA on file, it doesn't mean shit, does it? Yeah.
2: But I guess it can stay on file, so if they ever get pulled in for something else, at least... Yeah, you can't you've got it.
1: it. So two Austrian tourists had said that they'd met Schamel on a previous visit... And he was so lovely that they'd come back for, to the Orkney again. Him. I don't know just to see him, but they'd come <laughs> back and they chatted with him again and were having a conversation with him. And this was a couple of days before his murder. And so they'd been talking to him at the restaurant. And then they'd saw that two men had come and they'd gotten in an argument with him. So Shamal had refused them entry. And then they heard one of the men threatened to shoot him. <gasps> That's like
2: when I went to the kebab shop the other day,
1: and there was a big fight outside because one of the delivery
2: drivers did a U-turn and nearly ran over this woman, to be fair, and then the man that was with the woman smacked the car really hard and then started chasing after the car, tried to punch the guy through a window, but then he went over to the... The car drove away, but then he went over to the kebab shop and... Started mouthing off saying, I'm going to get your delivery driver. He nearly killed my girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, "I'm going to see a murder. I just want a dollar and chips. And then, yeah, and then the next day when we drove past, I
1: said, if that window smashed, we're going to have to go to the police. But it wasn't. Oh, because you would have seen it. But if that delivery, not that I'm condoning violence, but if that delivery driver had run over the woman, yeah. it would have been a very different story for another reason. They were both in the wrong
2: everybody's wrong everyone was in the wrong but i'm terrible with faces like, you are
1: shit with faces really that's true i'd be a terrible witness especially with real life situation because i can't be like well i've just looked it up on imdb and actually lucy <laughs> like, it's not a situation we're gonna you'd be up. really good you're very good with <laughs> the face so they tried to do inquiries into who these men were they threatened to shoot him uh, but they couldn't get anything out of it it didn't go anywhere And after three weeks, the only significant information they had, really, was that someone had seen the suspected killer about six o'clock passing through a community known as St. Ola, which would prove to be important later on. So after the attack, racial incidents then began to increase in the island. A female taxi driver, um, two men approached her car One of them was mumbling insults at her, one of them exposed himself, and then they threatened to shoot her. That's a hell of a double act, isn't it? (laughs) Like, I'll say the racist things, you just get your knob out. Yeah. I don't want to be racist, I just want to be rapey. No one should be picking between racist and rapey, like, they're both pretty horrid.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Just avoid it. I'm surprised that racial incidents increased. You'd think no one would want to be associated or... I mean, it must be the guy.
1: And so yeah, usually it's the other way around. Like if there was with things that are happening happened in Manchester, that's when racial incidents increase because people then act out and say the racists all pop up and say, oh, it's because they're black or whatever. Yeah, it's just given a sense that maybe people felt like this was the beginning of something good. There's a small immigrant community that someone's taken a stand against it. And they're being they're not being, they're not causing the crimes. No, but people are saying like, right, a movement's happening, we can rid the island. So this happened, these two men went to court and they admitted in court that they'd done it because she was Asian. So they were unashamed to be racist. They were only given 200 hours community service and... Um, sentenced to pay 400 pounds compensation to the victim bnp so the british national party which is basically racist r racist r they were leaflets and things were being found in telephone boxes and areas around so they were just it seemed to be clear that something was happening so then the 12th of august so six weeks now into the investigation di chisholm arrived for work and Eddie Ross, the firearms expert, was leaving after the night shift. And they met on as they were swapping. And um, for some reason, Eddie Ross decided that this was the time to admit that he had a box of these 9mm Indian bullets at his house. So that was a re- And he obviously knew that this was a key part of the investigation. They were looking for anyone who had a gun that could fire these bullets because that was the murderer. And he then said, oh, by the way, I have some of these bullets at home. Six weeks later.
2: And there's one missing from the
1: park. <laughs> well, he, almost. Oh, God. So Chisholm was like, what the fuck? You know this is a big deal. So he sent him home with a driver to fetch the bullets. And Eddie Ross said he couldn't even remember where he got them from. So, D.I. Chisholmously, this isn't good enough, you need to go home, and tomorrow when you come out of work, I'm going to expect you to tell me where you got these bullets from. Not assuming that Eddie had done it, but assuming that whoever had them was going to be the person. Yeah. This is a big lead. So, Eddie Ross, however, continued to be weird about it. He came back the next day and said, I've remembered who gave them to me, but I don't really feel comfortable telling you who they are. Like, it's not fair. Tough shit, there's been a murder. Yeah, he was like, so I don't really want stone. to tell you because I haven't had a chance to warn them and it wouldn't be fair because now they're going to be a suspect. Chisholm was like, bring them in. If you know who they are, go and get them and bring them in for an interview. So Ross went off and then came back and said, can't find him. There's not many people on this island. Go Sorry,
2: you're perverting the cause of justice. Fuck you.
1: Exactly. So Chisholm was like, right, if you're not going to do this, you're not to make contact with him. You can't speak to him now. We'll find him if you won't, but don't contact him. So the next day, Eddie Ross saw him again at work and said, "Okay, the person is called Jim and I've met up with him and I've arranged for him to come in. So even though he'd been expressly told not to contact him, he'd gone and met up with him, but said he's going to come in. Eddie Ross was then questioned and he said that the guy is called Jim Spence. He was a former Marine. And he gave me one sealed box of these bullets, but then I just forgot that I had them, so that's why I didn't mention it. So Jim Spence was then questioned, and he said that while I was a serving as while I was serving as a marine, I found these bullets, and if I'd have mentioned, <laughs> I found them. Yeah, and he said if I'd have brought it up at the time, not a video game where you go around collecting. Yeah, oh mine, mine. <laughs> it's in my what they call it the inventory now. Yeah. That would be a weird way to live life. Just pick. That's like what two-year-olds do, walking across, picking up crap off the floor. <laughs> don't you? Yeah. And you have to go, no, icky. <laughs> Ackie, we used to say. Ackie. Ackie don't eat that. <laughs> <laughs> don't eat that. Discard. Come <laughs> Um. So, yeah, so he said... Uh, so, yeah, he said he'd found them. And there was something about... He was about to be... He was about to leave the Marines. He was getting ready to be discharged. And he didn't want to do anything that might cause an investigation and mean that he couldn't get sent home. So rather than just leave them where they are, they're in his inventory now, he took them home and thought, what I'll do is I'll give them to Eddie Ross, he's the firearms officer, he's a police officer, I can trust him. Part of his job is to dispose of weapons that are illegal, so I'll hand them in. Eddie Ross, although he was being really suspicious, he was not a suspect for the murder. He was at home when the shooting happened, and they knew because he'd picked up a phone call to come into work after the shooting immediately. He couldn't have got home to St. Ola in time. Oh. The area where the killer was seen after. But he'd received the call, so he couldn't have done it. He wasn't the murderer. So, by mid-August now, to a couple of months, the investigation had to be scaled down. The mainland officers were sent back to their normal duties. But on the 9th of September... Lynn Ralston, who was the one who'd seen the suspicious balaclava man in the woods, said she'd been out in town at lunchtime and she'd seen the man and recognised him. So, the next day, her and a police officer went to the cafe where she spotted him, hoping that he'd come back, thinking it was part of his routine, and she could point him out. I really want to know who's done it, now. (laughs) Good! I'm glad I'm I'm bringing you a mystery. I'm in this story. So... He did return, and she was pointing him out to the officer as the creepy man in the woods. And the police officer was able to identify him as 15-year-old Michael Ross, the son of Constable Eddie Ross. No. He did it 15 well, this then gives... Well, so he wasn't in the 16 to 50 bracket for questioning. He was oh, 15. Yeah. He's one year out! The diners definitely were confused when they'd seen him because he wasn't this big, huge man. He was a boy, basically, that had come in and he done this. He was a lanky streak of teenager. And this obviously accounted for why Eddie hadn't wanted to admit to the bullets because he obviously knew this was you know, incriminating evidence and could have possibly suspected his son's involvement. So then they start to think even more so, if it's his son, he's covering up for him. Yeah. However, at the time this came out, they were preparing for this case to be featured on Crime Watch, which is a big show in the UK. They feature crimes on there and then it's national. Loads of people watch it and they call in for evidence and people call in with information. So if you can get your case on Crime Watch it's likely that you can develop a few leads from it. But you get, the problem is they get loads of calls, don't they? And they have to sift through them all. Exactly. So, I mean, there's there's 36 police officers. They were preparing for a reenactment. So this is a big deal. They obviously have to come to the local area, film it. They're going to have to give all their evidence to the TV crew so they can sort it out. It's not a small undertaking. And then obviously afterwards, they've got to chase up all of this information that they've got, most of which is goose chase stuff. Do they still make it? I think they might do. After she'd identified, so they knew Michael Ross was the creepy woods guy with the balaclava. It was two weeks later that they were actually starting to follow up on that lead and ask inquiries about him. So they interviewed Michael Ross on the 24th of September, but because he's 15, he was accompanied by his dad. Michael had no alibi for the incident in the woods, he couldn't say where he was but he did have an alibi for the time of the murder. Oh. He said he was in a housing estate around the Papdale area and he spoke to two people, Ingrid Watson and Hayden Alliston. Ingrid, that's a name I've not heard in a long It's a quite nice name, really.
2: Ingrid. Ingrid.
1: I can see that coming back. So they spoke to them, obviously, to check his alibi and both people said, yeah, we know Michael, but we didn't see him or speak to him on the 2nd of June when the murder took place. Totally said no, no way. Now the Crime Watch episode went out on my sixth birthday. Oh, so sixth of October. Did you watch it? No. Well, I might have done. No, it's my birthday. Yeah. I was fucking eating cake. Yeah. It was my sixth birthday. I was eating cake and partying in a box. Probably. Aww. I always had a. There always seemed to be cardboard boxes to play in at my parents' house when I was a kid. <laughs> um. So sixth of October, nineteen ninety-four. So after following up all the information is that it wasn't until the 2nd of December then that they went to interview Michael Ross for a second time this time they'd agreed that we'll speak to him first without his dad and without the tape being played so it's fine like we'll have him on his own but we won't record it and during that conversation he admitted that he was in the woods that day so they immediately suspended it put the tape back on, got someone in to sit in on the conversation and he repeated that same story he said "So he said he was in the woods and the reason he was there was he was waiting for a boy that he went to school with because he'd apparently punched Michael's ex-girlfriend <sighs> so he was wanting for him to come and beat him up basically that's why he had the balaclava, he said he didn't want to kill him he was just going to hurt him no, he said he didn't want to hurt him, he was just going to scare him is why he had this balaclava he was going to shit him up in the woods So they spoke to the ex-girlfriend and she said, yes, there was an incident with me and this guy and yes, Michael did know about it. So it's possible that's what he was actually there for. Yeah. So then he was interviewed later that day. So they interviewed him separately then about the murder that same day, thinking, right, he's talking now. But he still gave the same alibi. So they went again to the two people and they obviously still said, no, we didn't speak to him. Nothing's come back. We didn't talk to him. Um, the police assumed that he must have used gun and bullets from his dad's collection. He could have got those ones.
2: It's weird to give an alibi that you spoke to
1: people that you didn't even speak to. Just say you were somewhere where you didn't speak to anyone. You just say was oh, a... yeah. And then they can't... Follow. I was surprised. I don't know whether he... from what I can gather, I can't see that... He... He was particularly really good friends with them. You know, you might think if he was really good friends that they would just automatically lie because yeah. they got it. But I can't see that that was the case. So then they looked into him a bit more. Eddie Ross and his two sons, so Michael and he had a younger son as well, they were members of the Orkney Full Boar Association, so the local gun club, where they regularly went to shoot. And the boys were also in the cadets where they were taught to fire guns. So he was definitely capable of shooting really well. So Jim Spence was interviewed again and this time he said that he gave them one sealed box of the bullets and one open box that was half empty. He also said that Eddie Ross had contacted him three times after his interview, tra- telling him, do not tell them about the open box, only tell them that you gave me one sealed box. No. They then interviewed Michael's girlfriend and she said that in a cup after the shooting... Because they're asking basically, what do you know about Michael and guns? And she said that after the shooting, they'd been walking along the beach together on a date. And Michael had told her that earlier in the day, he'd got the key to his dad's gun cabinet, taken a gun, and he had it in his pocket then.
2: No. So he
1: definitely had access to his dad's guns, despite what his dad said. His dad said, they're all locked away, they can't get them. He could get them. He did get them. Could Eddie go down for this as well, if he's lying? He can definitely go down for something He's not. you don't get away with. And he's a police officer, so he, he'd lose his job, for sure. Mm-hmm. So then, obviously, the police said, we're going to search their house. And in Michael's bedroom, on his wall, he had mounted a decommissioned submachine gun. Oh, my God. It's like, just room decoration. They also found a notebook, which had he doodled in, and there was loads of Nazi stuff in it. So he'd written his name, his surname Ross... With In the middle of the O was a swastika and that double S was like the SS symbol. Oh my God. And he'd put all sorts of little things about that death is the only cure and (gasps) really weird stuff in there. And so then now we move into January 1995. So this happened. So we're now in January. Because obviously nothing happens over Christmas. So there's an identity parade and they brought various witnesses from the crime and other things, but nobody picked him out of the identity parade. So then March 1995, Eddie Ross, he was suspended from his job um, for various firearms offences. August 1995, there was an officer who'd been to the Orkney Gun Club in the beginning of the inquiries into the murder and was sent giving out questionnaires to everyone who owned guns to basically say, what guns do you own? Um, What? type of shooting do you do basically to gather information see if there was any suspects so what's going on with michael at this point is he under arrest no he's just going about his life but this officer had said that when he'd gone to give out the questionnaires the ross boys weren't there so he'd just given them to eddie to pass on thinking you know he's a police officer and it's fine but so the boy they didn't have the information on michael ross and his guns and what he his history of shooting was right it wasn't recorded yeah so that summer, Michael was just carrying about his life. He left school and he joined the Black Watch, which is a regiment in the army in the Highlands, a really prestigious one. But it's definitely it has to have been inspiration for the Night's Watch from Game of Thrones. Oh. But um, yeah, so he joined the army in this quite um, fancy regiment. They all have a, they have their own tartan, <laughs> the Black Watch. Um, so then, so continuing, so still August 1995. Then Di Chisholm, who the one who was told about the bullets from Eddie Ross, he sent his full report to the Crown Office to request that they could charge Michael Ross with the murder. But they said there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute. And because you can't retry in Scotland, they're not going to risk it until they've got something solid because if that's it, that's their one shot to get him. Yeah. So they said no. And now he's murdering for legals. <laughs> yeah. So he's fulfilling his goal. May 1997, so quite a few years later, Eddie Ross was finally charged with hindering this investigation by not disclosing the fact they had the bullets and he also had possession of an unlicensed handgun. Although it was about him hindering the case, it had to come out about Michael being a suspect. The judge insisted that, yes, you need to start talking about this because it's really relevant to whether he did it or not. And they basically said rethink your action you've done all this because you're protecting your son and it was his job at the time to dispose of handguns so basically he would disable them and then to get rid of them he would go out and dump them at sea and so they were questioning him in this trial about you know have you done this with a murder weapon it's your job your perfect person to get rid of a murder weapon it's never been found you you know exactly how to do it and your son knows how to do it like, this could be what's happening. It's like Dexter,
2: where he's working on the case that he's involved in.
1: It's all very Line of Duty, which totally rocked my world, that series. Oh, like I recommend everyone to watch it. It's We've the best. started,
2: but then we needed to go back and watch other stuff, so we're going to go back
1: to it. But now I've watched Line of Duty, which is about... I don't know if I've spoken about it in the podcast before. It's about anti-corruption in the police. So police investigating up. the police. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> I love it. But now I'm really suspicious of everything. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what they would say. They're all covering shit up. <laughs> um, so anyway, Eddie Ross was found guilty. And he was sentenced to four years in prison. He served two and then was released, presumably for good behaviour. turned to Kirkwall to work as an undertaker.
0: Like, right,
1: fair enough. So, his son's still in the army and he's served time for getting rid of made weapons mm-hmm. and lost his job. Mm-hmm. So, September September 2006, so 12 years after Shamsuddin Massoud was shot, a letter was handed into the police station. Do I have to do it, in Scottish? Yeah.
0: <clears throat>
1: Lari, this is a true letter. I promise that I saw the person who killed the Indian waiter. I saw his face in full and the handgun. It was in the toilets at the kiln corner. I have lived long enough with the guilt of not coming forward. The person was about 15 plus years aprox, white and had a balaclava on head but still not turned down. Colour was either dark blue or a black dark clothing. He came out of a cubicle but went back in quick when he saw me. I looked over and saw his face in full. The handgun was of a natural polished metal or silver and was like a big Beretta. This may sound stupid, but the way he held the handgun looked like he had handled a firearm before. I just don't ken what to do. Signed, a worried sick witness. (laughs) I impressed myself with that, if I'm honest. That was all right. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm going to move to Scotland. Yeah. Um, Wait, how, long, how long have they kept this a secret? 12 years.
2: Come forward at the time. So 12
1: years they've been living with this. They saw. So they saw someone, balaclava, handgun, in a toilet, and they went, oh, fuck, and went back in the cubicle because he thought the toilets were empty. If
2: you see a crime, tell the
1: police immediately. The difficult... And he said he saw his full face, didn't he? Because his balaclava yeah. wasn't turned out. I'm not quite sure why he wouldn't have come forward. But they were able to trace the author of this letter. And it was a man called William Grant. And when he was he was interviewed... Sword Willie. Willie. It was fucking Willie. So he was interviewed loads of times. And he said, this person was Michael Ross that I saw. so his full face, it was Michael Ross. And he said it every single time. He was sure of it. But he did admit that on the night in question he'd been drinking heavily. Scotland, didn't it? And that was something he regularly did. So the police were like, he's not the most reliable witness. It's gonna be really easy for the prosecute, for the defence to get him tied up in knots because he drinks all the time and everything he's got he's drunk for. Like it's
2: <laughs> Yeah, but making getting drunk doesn't make you see people who aren't there.
1: It's different from not. if you
2: were high on L S D or something. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, they thought it's worth a try, so they put together a new report and sent it to the Crown Office. And this time, they did think there was enough evidence to try Michael Ross for murder. So it was another year before the trial began, so um, they just within the legal time limit because they had to then start putting this case together. So Michael's in his late 20s now. He's been serving in the army for many years. Um, But the trial was held in Glasgow, on Monday the 12th of May in 2008. And the charges were as such. Between 3rd of May and 24th of May 1994, the exact date unknown, at Bridge Street, Kirkwall, outside the Mumitas Indian Tandoori restaurant, along with others unknown, he committed a breach of the peace by uttering racist abuse, threats of violence, shouted, swore, and acted in a disorderly manner. Second, on the 19th of May 1994, at Papdale Woods, Kirkwall, face-masked and head-covered, committed a breach of the peace by loitering and crouching behind a wall and trees. You've got to try everything, are not you? <laughs> Next one. On June 2nd, 1994, at the Mumitaz Indian Tandoori restaurant, 7 Bridge Street, with face-masked and head-covered, shot Shamsuddin Mahmood in the head and murdered him. On June 2nd, 1994, at the Kiln Corner Toilets, Junction Road, and elsewhere in Kirkwall, having committed the crime in Charge 3 and being conscious of his guilt, changed his clothing and footwear worn while committing the crime and disposed of the weapon. This he did to defeat the ends of justice and avoid detection, arrest and prosecution. So the breach of the peace thing is basically a thing that they can do in Scotland and it's really useful because it just covers weird behaviour, but it means that they can, unlike in other countries, they can get people for things like stalking without it having to go super far because stalking's really hard to sort of bring to trial. So I guess
2: it's common sense approach. You did did a bad thing. Yeah,
1: you were acting in a really creepy fucking way. People were upset by it. You shouldn't have been doing it. Yeah. So four charges were brought against him. So the prosecution had several witnesses who were cadets with Michael Ross and they were all telling about how he was a really good marksman really good at shooting he had the nickname Arnie because he was built like a brick shit house, like Arnold Schwarzenegger and, it was and he was fun. a politician <laughs> if only that's the way he'd gone he could have used his evil powers in a totally different way <laughs> uh, but more than one person who he was in cadets with said that he had expressed racist views and at least once they said that he'd apparently said blacks should be shot <gasps> That was his opinion. Who has that opinion? what happened well, to me to make you think that? I'm gonna say it's like you were just saying though. I don't know what yeah, why would he? It's weird. So the Ross family were called as prosecution witnesses. and um, basically, once you're called as a witness, you have to come or be held in contempt of court. So they were forced to go. And the brother was questioned about um his relationship with his dad, and they said he said that Michael and Eddie he said they were really close, close to the nurse, basically to try and prove that he would definitely cover for him. The mum was questioned about the stuff that they'd found in the home. And she said that, oh, he's not a Nazi. That it's just boy stuff. That's just what they do. It's just no, boyish that's... doodles. And that's what you're saying. Like, you get a bit of racist if your mum thinks that boys will be boys is an appropriate excuse for you thinking black people should be shot. I'm thinking a, a Nazi swastika is a doodle. It's not. And a combined, you know, you could get away with it if you're like, oh, he just did a swastika, but he did it combined with the SS logo, like double Nazi. So then Eddie was then called, and he just completely stuck to his story, saying that there was only one box of sealed bullets that were brought to the house. There's no way he could have used them. Which...
2: you think, Get with the time
1: that he... Yeah, all you're doing is really kind of adding to the cover-up scenario here. Yeah, we've had new information since then. So the defence, really, they just depended on witnesses. Their main witnesses that they were bringing were some Fijian soldiers. And they were brought to prove that Ross wasn't a racist because they were there it's to say made to a black. pretty much <laughs> they, they were there to say how supportive he'd been and that he had been really respectful of them and i was thinking the same i was like you can't just say oh i'm fine i've got friends that are black no like, it doesn't oh, work i wasn't racist to this one guy therefore i'm a tolerant person it's the thing of them being the, that idea on the island of like the immigrant community should be gone. Like, these Fijian soldiers weren't trying to move on into yeah. his area. Like, it might be a different story. But I
2: even in that Louis Threw documentary where he went to look at the racist group in America, they had friends who were Asian, I think. Yeah. And he just said, well, I, I have to work with him, so I'm nice to him. And he, it's not evidence you're not racist. Yeah. It's just evidence that you're in... In a
1: multicultural world and you have to, sometimes you have to get yeah, on with that. That you don't want to be arrested all the time. Yeah. So it finished the trial on the 16th of June. The jury went into deliberation. And the next day, he was found guilty by a majority. And they he was told that he was going to be remanded until sentencing in July. At this point, Michael Ross looked up shoved the security man to the side and launched himself over the court furniture, making a bolt for the door. Whoa. He managed to get out of the courtroom into the corridor and he was about to head to the fire exit when a court official managed to rugby tackle him to the floor and he was rearrested. But in the days immediately after this trial, it was found that this was his plan all along. He had hired a car at Glasgow Airport Filled it with weapons, grenades, a machine gun, and had parked it in a Tesco car park a couple of miles from the courthouse. So he was, who knows, whether he was thinking, if I'm remanded, I'm going to make a break for it and go off on a shooting spree. Or if I'm let go, I'm still going to go off and fucking shoot people. It's hard. to know, like, Or even if he'd been sentenced but let out on bail before he was sentenced, was he going to go and shoot his way off the no island? No
2: way.
1: He was planning something horrible. That was terrifying. So he was sentenced to 25 years for the life sentence, and then he was giving five additional years for his attempted escape and for the weapons. Um, his family and everyone were going to appeal it and say that it wasn't true, but that was shut down a few years later. So he is in prison on that. Wow, that was interesting. I'm glad you liked it. I, I liked like it too. That was good. So, there were lots of twists and turns along that. I uh, I liked it. Scotland has that for you. There you go. Um, There's also, this story is also featured on Netflix on a show called uh, Witness Murder Files. I haven't watched it because I didn't want to corrupt myself before (laughs) doing the podcast, but I probably will watch it now. And if you've listened to this podcast, you too can corrupt yourself by going and watching that version of it. We do a lot of recommendations. I think we're doing pretty good. But also people might be thinking, do you just watch TV all the time? You can go and compare it to how well I told the story. So thank you for listening to another episode of Slaughter. Yeah, thanks a lot. Really appreciate you sticking with us. And you can show your appreciation of our appreciation by appreciating us via Twitter. That's SlaughterThePod. You can also rate, review and subscribe to us on iTunes. Um Podbean, Stitcher, Stitcher right. whatever you listen. I don't know which ones you can rate on, but obviously
2: if you can rate on iTunes, that's the good I don't know why that's the main one, but it is the main one. Um and we would really appreciate you just taking a few minutes to write a review. Just to improve our star rating, move us up the charts and let people
1: know about us. Yep. Um you can get involved with our facebook group which is still like the cutest true crime community i believe i think the the, the nicest one we're managing to keep the cool people and then everyone loves each other there's been very few weirdos yeah so if you just search for slaughter true crime on facebook you can ask to join the group and we'll always let you in yeah until you're a dick yeah (laughs) and then you might you might be asked to leave yeah um and if you want to look cool as well as listen cool, you can get our t-shirts. Um Threadless do lovely ones and also Spreadshirt. Shirt. Spreadshirt for the UK, Threadless for
2: international. Um but I I'm in the UK and actually I prefer the Threadless
1: one that They're I soft ordered. soft and lovely. Um but soft as a freshly peeled skin.
2: I think they're quite hard to find if you just type it into Google. So the best way to find them is to go on to the Facebook group and there's links on there. But if you ask us on Twitter, I'll send you a link or whatever. Or you can email us at slaughter the podcast at gmail dot com.
1: Yeah, if you have a long message and there have been some lovely long messages, email them to us. Don't Facebook message us then because it's a pain in the arse.
2: Yeah. But yeah, and I want to read them. We read all the emails. We we put the time and effort into email. It comes up on my phone, and I'm always really excited when we get. Right, I was going to say write a
1: letter. I'd look,
2: I'd definitely respond
1: to a letter. I but want a
2: PO box that would be cool. Um, also, if you are having trouble with the sound quality on the podcast and you want us to improve it, that is what we're saving for on Patreon. So you can come and. Supporters, patreon.com forward slash
1: slaughter the pod. And if you're in the UK over 65 and having trouble hearing, you are eligible for a free hearing test and hearing aid. <laughs> Contact your GP. But that's what we're
2: saving for on Patreon. Uh, there's loads of extra content on there, and you will get a shout out if you donate a dollar. And if you all donated a dollar, we could quit our jobs and do this all the time.
1: This time next year, we'd be millionaires.
2: <laughs> we will not be millionaires.
1: Um, so thanks for listening.
2: And tell your friends. And listening to slaughter doesn't make you a psycho. Despite what your therapist says. Hold
0: up. What was that?